Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, folks. I know it's a late start in the day for here for here for us at Rogue over here on Friday, and we have one and only Danny Jerson. Danny Jerson is, I mean, the links are in the description box. He's a former major, a retired United States Army professor over at West Point. Wrote the amazing books, uh, Ghost Riders, as well as uh, the Real History of the United States, uh, which you guys need to get. The links are all in the description box. We have a late start, so I'm not going to take up much time. Danny, I want to welcome you. It's a privilege and an absolute honor to have you on. I'd love for you to just introduce yourself to our audience, and uh, we could take it from there, brother. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, well, let's see. You know, I, I grew up in uh, New York, not really from a military family, but uh, ended up at, at West Point, got there just before 9-11, and then I, you know, the towers come down, vengeful war and spent the next, you know, 17 and a half years kind of preparing or, or fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan and um, kind of turned against the wars based on what I saw there, as well as what I was studying, uh, ended up going back and teaching it at West Point and then uh, left the military a little early on a bit of a, a medical retirement, I guess, as well as uh, just kind of letting me, letting me off ramp uh, quietly without martyring in uh, 2019. And, you know, since then, and, and even before uh, on active duty, I've been kind of trying to speak out a bit, I don't know, call it penance or uh, intellectual duty, but uh, maybe a little bit of both. Absolutely, man. I mean, you know, I, I was saying right before we went live, like what you've done on the, for, first of all, for the military service to, exp to really crack open, you know, this entire war machine. Okay. It, it is an, it is a, a an amalgam of the military industrial complex, the defense industry, the media apparatchiks, as well as Wall Street financiers that are creating this thing that impoverishes us as, the, as a working and middle class America, destroys it, eviscerates it, all at the same time profiteering for the very select few. And it's amazing that you know we see this and, and, and we see this coming down the pike, especially with the recent losses in Afghanistan which kind of made, has been a big wake-up call to a lot of people to see those images of a C-17 taking off with people hanging off the ledge. I think it far supersedes any Chinook off the, you know, the, off the embassy rooftop in Saigon. I think it completely supersedes it, Danny. It does. There's a frustration to it, too, because, uh, you know, you've probably seen some of the studies that what – the ABC, NBC nightly news, where still a huge portion of people get their news, spent, what, five minutes of combined coverage over the course of a few years. And then suddenly now history started yesterday. History started with the fall of Kabul or, or, or a couple of days before that. 
Um, and Afghanistan's in the news every day. So on one side, you know, I guess, am I glad to see that foreign policy is on folks' radar? Yeah, I guess. Uh, then again, I think that most of the coverage of it has been kind of vacuous. You know, it's kind of, it starts history yesterday. It lacks context and contrast and backstory. It's been, it's been frustrating, I guess, uh, personally, and also for a lot of my buddies as, as a veteran of that war to see the whole thing fall apart, not because I thought it was winnable, everybody. And a lot of this kind of came to light for me, this connection to like the money and the war industry and who profits in little weird anecdotes as I went along in my career. I think the first time I noticed that something was awry was as simple as visiting one of my soldiers who'd been uh, shot in the spine, paralyzed, still is, uh, in Baghdad. And I'm in the hospital in the next room over, you know, I'm out in the hallway just trying to catch a breather or a bunch of mercenaries. I believe there was an American a, a British guy and I think a South African. I think the British guy had been shot. So he was in the room and they were visiting him. Now, that's the low end of it, right? That's the rubber meets the road, hundred or $100,000 a year contractors. But that was when I kind of first started to see it. And then from there, kind of zooming out and being like, what was this all for? You know, how does the system work? Who does it profit? Where's the blood money go? And it certainly wasn't coming into the soldiers in my unit. Correct. I think the latest figures, I think it was... Uh... I forgot who it was. I don't know if it was foreign policy or one of these uh, think tank type publications that stated that in the last 20 years we've spent what they admit to, Danny, that they've spent eight trillion, wasted eight trillion total in the last 20 years, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is what they admit to. Right. Uh, I've talked to guys who track this stuff. I talked to firms who see the, the banks going you know, the bank wires going in and out. I mean, we're estimating on the financial side, it's probably closer to 10, maybe even 12 trillion total and when we see that a little literally a generational wealth being vacuumed out and we have nothing to show for it where people here cannot even get decent health care people who can't get decent i mean the infrastructure is falling apart it's unbelievable man that's why you know it's get, becoming a cliche i said it months ago i've been saying it ever since you know the dod slogan should be this is why you can't have nice things yeah. And, and that's more than just cheeky. That's real. You know, Eisenhower gave that speech where he says, um, you know, it's the Adams for Peace speech, like 53. He says every gun that is built, every missile that is made is like wealth that's stolen from us. Then he starts listing out what it is. Right. It's like mm -hmm. this many bushels of grain, this many silos, this many whatever new brick and mortar schools. I mean, if we wanted to update that. Um, OK, if you're on the libertarian side, we'd say it's this many dollars in tax cuts or whatever back in your pocket. If you're on the more progressive side, we could say it's this many subsidized college tuitions. It's this many subsidized, you know, preschools or, or daycares. I mean, there really is a cost to this. And what's crazy about it is we would have almost been better off taking the money, digging a big hole in the desert, you know, maybe where we used to test the nuclear weapons that we can't use. Yeah. Uh, at least we want to survive as a species and just, just bulldoze all that money in there. Right. I mean, because we've, we've literally had counterproductive outcomes. All that money has been spent. It, the, the cost has been millions dead overseas, tens, you know, tens of thousands of American soldiers and contractors dead, to, you know, way more than that wounded, whatever, suicides, yep. and more enemies made to the extent that they're even enemies, or more extremists or more groups that don't like the United States or, or our forces or are committing murder in their own countries. So every single outcome has been counterproductive. And, and that's not talked about enough. They'll say, look, this is how much was spent. Isn't that obscene? Well, it is. Except that what we got for that money is a worse world. And and for me, as like a, a veteran, I don't like always personalizing or always just speaking from a veteran standpoint, but I will say this. 
I grapple with that. Mm. It's like everything that I was a part of in my entire adult life has made the world a, a worse place. Wow. And I'm complicit in that. And so what do I do? Right. It's like, I'm not some hero because I come on here and speak about it. Maybe I'm insufferable. Maybe a little bit of it is, is motivated positively. And maybe it's just that I'm an exasperating person who likes to talk and study and show off what he knows. But I, I will tell you that I do feel a profound duty to say, look, I was complicit in this. A lot of us were not all the veterans feel that way, but that is, that is a grotesque thing, uh, conclusion to come to that, that everything we've done as a country militarily in the world has been for the worse for almost everyone involved. You know, in your book, A True History of the United States, I think you kind of nailed down, you pinpoint, and folks, you can, the link is in the description box, go to Amazon, you can get it directly there, it's another bookstore uh, sellers as well, get the book, it's an eye-opener, it's a magnum opus on understanding where this whole entire life started. Danny, would you want to unpack that for us, where do you think this, this, this propaganda, this Madison Avenue, Hollywood-created image that most Americans think about their military? Well, you know, I mean... Yeah, from the start, every country has an origin story. Yeah. Uh, usually that origin story is, is, is built on a lot on myth. Mm. We pick our origin story. And so we, we pick like Plymouth Rock and, you know, religious freedom and all that. Right. Um, and of course, we ignore the fact that the, the first permanent settlement in Jamestown is it's like a it's like a corporate enterprise that is like an utter disaster. It's motivated by greed and, and and geopolitics and power it has nothing to do with like these poor pilgrims who who want to get away from you know on the military side um we ignore the fact that most of our colonial militias were, were were murderous factions that would like pull themselves together you know they put down their plows for a little bit and they go burn an indian village right and, and massacre them like the mystic massacre that was going on um we like the idea though on militarily that we were formed, forged as a nation in opposition to empire, in opposition to the greatest empire in the world, the British. And of course, there's a lot of problems with that. Uh, number one, even when we were a colony or colonies, we were ourselves an empire, right? A, an expansive settler colonial empire. Uh, about a third of Americans actually supported the British, about a third were on the fence and about a third were patriots. So it wasn't even a majority that wanted independence. And then as soon as we we win it, we continue that imperial expansion and what people don't like to admit is that the united states has always been an empire even before it was a country and i think that what is important to americans is this notion of exceptionalism that there's something unique about us and because of that uniqueness we have a unique mission in the world yeah. and that messianic factor yes is what makes us it, we are exceptional but for all the wrong reasons right i mean that messianic element is highly dangerous it's 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 absurd it is. If a human being said, I'm exceptional, I'm exceptional. Like I am the most exceptional. I am. I mean, think about the language yeah. used by our country. Yeah. I am. The, I'm the indispensable person. Yeah. I am the last best hope for my town and family. We would, we would commit that person clinical <laughs> insanity. But when a country says it, we're like, you're a patriot. You're just a patriot. In fact, if you don't believe that you can't be president. And the city on the, with the, the city on the hill, the indispensable nation. It's insane talk. It's crazy talk, and no one ever questions it. We just no one it. does. No if one you does. do, you hate America, by the way. Oh, if you do, you're not patriotic. And this is one that I think. Yeah, you know, I've always said this, Dan. I think uh, Americans need to start having an adult conversation about how our country is run and how our money is spent. Absolutely. Um, no one really 
either wants to do that or, or, or is capable of it. You know, they, they, they can't understand the big picture stuff. If there's hyphens in words, they stop listening. You know, it's too complicated, military, industrial complex and all that. That's why I like to say war industry or blood money. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's an important conversation to have. And um, the, the big dollars and cents, the, the big movers and shakers, it's not always politicians. And uh, it's, you know, George Carlin kind of put his finger on that back in the day, right? And I think it was in the either in the late 90s or like the early 2000s where he said, you know, the owners of this country don't want that. They don't want an educated citizenry. And he said, I'm talking about the real owners here, not the politicians. They're there put in place to give you the illusion that you have some control. Um, but the people who own things and, uh, and that certainly includes in the foreign policy side, the military industrial complex, but it's bigger than all that, isn't it? And you know that probably better than I do. It's a big club and we're not in it. Right. It's a big club. Denny, you know, America has been expanding since the, uh, since the victory in 1776, we had an opportunity to just really do the right thing. We've had a messy history for sure. Then I think the greatest, uh, the greatest problem occurred right at the end of World War II. Could you walk us through that and what immediately happened right after World War II that created this, this jump into what is known as the superpower status and then driving us into this, this really constructed Cold War that was pulled together by financial interests in the city of London as well as Wall Street, I can attest to. But if you want to break that down, brother. Well, so in some ways, the worst thing that ever happened in the United States was winning World War II. Yeah. Now, I, I don't mean that to say that I was a big fan of uh, or I would have been a big fan of Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan necessarily kind of dividing the world if, as if it was that simple. But the problem as this there was a past was the time uh, totally lost to history. Right. A.J. Mustaine, he said, I put this in my book, he said something that the problem with with victory in a war is with the winner. He starts to believe that force works and that it's the way to handle problems. Correct. And, and and that certainly was the case with the United States because there were there was a money side and then there was like a cultural side. And the cultural side was kind of fed to the American people in order to cover up and justify the financial, you know, power and, and geopolitics side. So we win this war. We say we won it, right? And you'll see these T-shirts people wear, like back-to-back uh, -back World War champs. Yes. But of course, the French won World War One with their bodies in the trenches, you know, right. with their sacrifice. And the Russians did the same, except on an even greater scale. The United States kind of comes in at the end and just jumps over the goal line. And I mean, the casualties back this up. I mean, Yugoslavia loses more soldiers or, or more people than the United States. Yeah. Eight out of ten German soldiers died at the Russian front. That's right. U.S. hands. You know, like 4,000 Americans die on D-Day at the same time during, you know, Operation Bagration, which is going on simultaneously in June and July uh, of 44. The Russians are, are mopping up a division a day. Yeah. From the Germans. Right. Yeah. And losing one in order to take one. So, I mean, it's, it's, the scale of it is so off. Now, Americans don't recognize that. And we go from these propaganda posters which were handed out to American soldiers with like a picture of like a Soviet soldier with like the red star in his helmet. It says, this man is your friend. He fights for freedom. I think I have that picture in the book. I mean, this was like a pamphlet that the war department would give out to soldiers. Like in case you run into them, like just so you know what you're fighting for. Yeah, and it's almost instantly that now they're the greatest enemy. In some ways they'll told us they were worse than the Nazis, a yeah. bigger threat. And, and there's this immediate shift. And if you read some of the internal memos coming out of like what's now the National Security Council at the time, folks are saying, and I'm sure that you've kind of read some of this stuff and, and know it as well. Look, our economy needs 
these overseas markets needs this like military spending um, in order to maintain these profits and this power. So it's a constructed Cold War that happens instantly. And what's really remarkable about it is the way that the American people kind of acquiesce. Yeah, pretty quickly. I mean, they're 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 scaremongered into it partly, and folks like Henry Wallace, who had been you know President Roosevelt's vice president until the last election when they brought Harry Truman in in order to like right. burnish his credentials in the Midwest and all this, you know, he was saying no, like we don't need this Cold War. We're we can we can sort of live together with the Soviets without having to basically contest the world. And of course, tens of millions of people die. You know, right. we never go to world war with the Soviet Union, but the outcomes yeah. for these places that we're contesting through proxy wars and so sometimes hot wars like Vietnam or Afghanistan for the Soviets are the costs are uh, immeasurable. And the fact that we still live on the precipice of the world ending in an afternoon because of the nuclear weapons that we've absurdly created, only the human species would do that, right? Create the method of its own destruction. Tigers will eat your face. But they can't, they wouldn't even consider, right, coming up with something like that. Um, you know, I mean, that, that, that's the story. And, of course, I think the big thing there is the United States starts to really believe its myth. Mm. We are the last best hope. Mm. We, look, we proved it, right? We proved it twice, World War I and now especially World War II. If we don't, then it's Munich all over again. If we don't, it's appeasement of Hitler and there'll be another Holocaust. Of course, that's really, really disingenuous because we didn't get into World War II in order to save human rights, just like we didn't get into Afghanistan to like protect women. right? We did almost nothing, even once we're in the war, to stop the Holocaust. We lie about how much we knew it was happening. We knew. Folks yeah. knew it. And, and, and we do the same thing with Afghanistan. We write history afterwards. Like, see, we went in to protect women, so we got to stay. We start to believe that. We start to believe that if we don't, do the next military action overseas. If we're not proactive, forward basing, that's why we have 800 bases in 80 countries at least that we know right. about. Right. This is the whole problem. We still live in the world that begins in some ways in August of 1945. And it's maybe the worst thing that ever happened to America in terms of its role in the world. Absolutely right. And you know, the craziest thing is when I begin to take a step back and look into the, the forest of what's been occurring in America's foreign affairs and foreign spelunking that it's been doing, I look at it this way, man. It's like every war, like like you you quote, I think you quoted uh, John Adams or something like that, where you said that every 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 bullet that's made, every weapon of war that's crafted, we're you know we could be, we could have like a couple of grain silos, a new school, things of that sort. Every dollar spent in the in the military industrial complex is complete waste, and it, it could be put to good use in the private sector. You know, we and I think that sometime, uh, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The economy kind of moved in lockstep, and it's been an acceleration stage ever since. And what I mean by that is this. It's it's turned from, okay, we're an industrial-based economy, a physical economy with physical production, to, oh, now we're a service-based economy. We're going to offshore our manufacturing capability, to now it is a full-on run-to-failure wealth extraction scheme. And I think the horrors of what happened in Afghanistan, because the only thing that ever held the dollar in terms of dollar reserve currency wasn't because it's backed by gold, wasn't because it's backed by oil, that some would even postulate, but it is the fact that it is backed by the full might and capability of the United States military. Mm -hmm. That has been gravely tarnished on a tarmac in Kabul. So the, the, the thing going forward, Dan, it's like, 
what did you see like right after World War II? What would you say will be the next few things that really highlighted this this myth? And then what led us uh, into Afghanistan? Can can you also extrapolate for us what you've experienced there? So kind of leading up to Afghanistan, there's um, you know in the, in the early Cold War, it's it's all Europe. You know the the playing ground we think is uh, is Western Europe. We, it's, it's all about dividing it down the middle. Um, we, you know, the myth is that the, the, the Soviets are coming. You know, they're coming for the English Channel. And then once they get there, it's London and then it's New York. And, you know, you're going to take your kids in Brooklyn. It was always a myth. But what quickly happens with the formation of NATO, not only to divide the world in two armed camps, but the empires that largely fought World War II, just like they fought World War I to maintain their empires. I'm talking the British and the French here. We need them now, we think, we decide. So that means that we have to stop being the country we say we are. We never really were, but we said we were, which is we're anti-imperial, right? We were formed against empire. And now we're gonna quietly or overtly back British and French imperial enterprises, bail them out, take them over in Africa and out in Asia. So that's what partly, that, that devil's bargain is what partly shifts our efforts into the third world, which kind of gets us to Afghanistan is what I'm getting at. So and that's how you get Vietnam, you know, Korea to a certain extent, U.S. proxy wars across Africa. And then eventually the Middle East, right? Because then, well, everyone has an automobile. There's there's this enormous amount of affluence in the United States. I mean, what do we, we create? We, we build like half of the things in the world by the end of the war because everyone else is destroyed. America's untouched. Right. You know, about 450,000 Americans die in that war. It's a lot of people, but not really, not comparably. Our cities aren't bombed. Our economy is not wrecked. So that affluence that comes out of it requires, again, like an enormous amount of petrol resources. So now we've, we're backing up all these colonies. We're underwriting these imperial efforts. We just call it something different. Mm -hmm. we continuing the indecency. And then, of course, the Middle East is a big thing. In the late 70s, this is important. There's a strategic shift to the Persian Gulf. And a new lie forms. The old lie is that the Soviets are going to try to conquer France. Hmm. They're come across through Berlin, over into West Germany, and then they're coming. That was never happening. There's no evidence the Soviets ever really planned that. Right. Uh, the next myth uh, around the late 70s, Carter Doctrine. Right. Remember that dovish Carter we always hear about? Not so dovish. <laughs> not so dovish. <laughs> yeah, not so much. Like he wasn't his dove wasn't quite white. It was it was like a pigeon in New York. OK, it was very, <laughs> right. So the new logic and the military jumps all over this. That's how we get central command. CENTCOM, the big command that's like in charge of all our wars. It's formed, you know, in like the late 70s, early 80s. The new lie is that what's really going to happen is the no, no, the Russians aren't coming west into France. We're too strong there. Right. They need the petrol resources. They're going to come straight through to the Persian Gulf, yeah. which means what? Through Afghanistan, through Iran, right? Uh -huh. Of course, there's no evidence that was going to happen either. But that's part of why we start focusing so much on the Middle East and maintaining control over those resources. So when the Russians intervene or get pulled into Afghanistan, it's really largely a defensive measure. I'm, I'm not in favor of what the Russians did there, but the, if you look at their internal records, they weren't trying to conquer Afghanistan just because they wanted to increase their empire and eventually go to the Persian Gulf. They, they saw it as like a necessity, a necessity for stability in their region. Yeah. 
Um, and they're afraid of Islamism in their region because a member of Afghanistan touched gotcha. them. Like it's actually in their neighborhood. It's like if something was going on in Canada, we'd care, right? Correct. So that's sort of how America gets involved is now it's it's vengeance. We're going to give them their Vietnam. We start funding the Mujahideen, the most reactionary elements in their society. Hmm. The communist government, which was not a Soviet client, it, it, there's no evidence that it was the Soviets that were in charge of that 78 coup. Correct that overthrows the king's like nephew or whoever was in charge, Mohammed Daoud. Um, the, the, that government and the Soviet, you know, backed government, once they invade and kind of put a new guy in, they were really good on women's rights. Yeah. I mean, the areas fact, they controlled were great. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the pictures that a lot of people attribute to you, you're seeing the black and white pictures of these girls in Afghanistan wearing the, the, the short skirts and all this other stuff that was under the pro Russian government, man. Of course. <laughs> I love that. It's the same as what we did. Like yeah. we went through all our gains in Kabul. Yeah. Russians did a hell of a job on the same thing. I mean, they also bombed the villages, but so did we. Yeah. So we're back in these reactionary elements, and that's really how we get in. I mean, we set the we set the Afghan people back by supporting these reactionary elements. They eventually coalesced for a number of reasons. It's complicated into the Taliban, but that's the long arc of getting there. And then, in terms of my own experience, that's what I saw. You know, I, I found myself fighting a guerrilla war against these elements right in the Taliban's heartland. And, you know, I, what I found was that at least in that area, the people were fairly sympathetic to at least the social values of the Taliban. I, I found it to be a lie that, you know, the Taliban were so unpopular that the people were just scared of them. That was not what I uh, found. That's not what people told me even when I got close to them. Many of them saw the Taliban as actually more legitimate than the Kabul government and certainly more legitimate than our military occupation because the truth is militarism was the problem. The occupation was the problem. And we actually fed the Taliban narrative and created, crafted them, justified them as the national resistance movement that they always hoped to be. Yeah, absolutely. And what did you see in terms of what was happening in Afghanistan what you see and then what you see in terms of the disconnect with what's being reported by the media and how the military brass was spinning this whole thing. Guys like McChrystal, guys like Petraeus, what were they doing to spin this whole thing up? And it, it's insanity. And I think it's very important that people, a lot of people venerate Petraeus like he's a genius and McChrystal. Oh my God, it's a genius. Stanley McChrystal. You know, I think, uh, Matthew Hastings has something to say about that, but you know that's, that, that's another story. But you want to break that down for us, brother? Yeah, that Hastings book, by the way, The Operators, there's that yep. scene where McChrystal get, goes down to that one outpost where the sergeant, who's all frustrated, sends him an email after one of his buddies was killed saying, like, your ROE is not helping. This coin strategy won't work. You don't understand how bad it is down here. And McChrystal's like, I'm going to go down there and walk a patrol with them. You know, of course, the patrol, he goes on like nothing happens. But that outpost, which is like a famous chapter in the book, was that was my, I commanded that outpost about uh, eighteen months later. Wow! And I can tell you, it's Pashmul South, is what it was called, and um, right in the heart of Kandahar, miles from the home village of you know Taliban sort of founder Mullah Omar. Nothing had improved in that time. The the lie from the Petraeus McChrystal folks and the politicians who were putting them on the pedestal they were on, giving them the power and the platform. The lie was that we could do counterinsurgency there, that if we just use this more polite and sophisticated kind of urbane warfare, that somehow was going to be less bloody. We could divide the Taliban from the people. We'd, we'd win hearts and minds. We'd secure the population. And all I'm thinking is, 
you know, we're three years into this surge, basically, when I get there or two years into the surge and uh, and 11 years into the war, 10 and 11 years into the war. And, and my soldiers can barely we can barely walk out the gate without getting attacked. My base gets attacked every day. I'm in a full fledged guerrilla war. I, I'm not at the hearts and minds spot. And we never got there at the, at the height of the surge. And so the myth is that there, first of all, that there is a more sophisticated way to do warfare. The second myth is that there was progress being made. Everybody lied. Everybody winked from like colonel up to chairman of the Joint Chiefs, administration after administration, year after year. That dissembling and omission, and in some cases just outright deceit and lies, is part of what kept the delusion going. The fantasy, the mirage. Turned out it was just built on sand at best, and it collapsed as soon as the Taliban called in the chips. Hmm. So my experience was that they told us that counterinsurgency is based on clear hold build. You clear the area of the insurgents in a big fight, but that's just the, that's the basic part. Then you hold it, right? You don't let them back in, and then you build, right? You can encourage the PUA, literally build like schools and markets and roads, but but no, you build trust in the government, right? And and you you sort of uh, build up the economy, and of course, <laughs> sounds like something was written by a Harvard idiot. Well, yeah. Well, it was written by a Princeton idiot. Of course. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Portray is a freaking moron. I mean, the guy's I, – I, I read his, like, dissertation, right? Like, yeah. He, he's – yeah, he, the guys like McChrystal and Petraeus and even McMaster, they read books. Sometimes they even write them. Yeah. Um, but they're reading the wrong books. It's like that scene from Hunt for Red October, you know, where uh, Harrison Ford says to Captain Ramius, right, the uh, Sean Connery Russian sub-commander, he says – I wrote a book about uh, called like the fighting sailor about Admiral Bull Halsey, you know, cause uh, he was like a professor and <laughs> Sean Connery character goes, I read this book, Ryan, all of your conclusions were wrong. He's like, yeah, they read books. Yeah. You know, they're smart guys, but they're reading the wrong books. They're writing the wrong things. It's a giant circle jerk, man. That's all it is. When I look at American brass, I look at the, the, the generals on up, the colonels, the generals on up. These guys are part of a bureaucratic class. There's a bureaucratic culture. And I've seen this with military brass. I've seen this with politicians. I've seen this with corporate brass. It is a type of virus, a disease that has gotten within the American mainstream upper class culture. And it's turned into a giant echo chamber where everybody's mutually and mentally masturbating each other with these false concepts. It is downright dangerous, man. Downright dangerous. Yeah, they're snake oil salesmen, and yes. they're all in on it. And they're selling it to themselves, and each of them are buying it. Like, like there's some victory at the end of the day. Like, in 10 years, we're still going to be here. Dude, we're getting creamed. Like, I look at the numbers all day, and this is what I'm, like, impassioned about. All day I do is stare at numbers. That's all I freaking do, right? And when I see the numbers, I'm just like, okay. You know, I was like, yeah, we got a good 10 years of this bull market going. With all the things that have happened in the last three years – I don't think this country survives, economically speaking, in the next two to five years would be a miracle. Look, the Fed just announced today, before you and I went, out, went live, they just announced they are no longer reporting economic data. They are no longer reporting any sort of GDP numbers or economic data till further notice. Uh, and we're taken, what percent? We're no longer going to tell you the casualties of the Afghan government, which just seems an important number. Because let's just say that up right before that, the Afghan military that we were dependent on to win this war, remember that they're the, they're the ticket out, right? They were losing more people killed and wounded every month and deserting than they were bringing in. 
Now that, as a basic economist, right, that's no good. That's not sustainable. So what we did is we just classified defeat. It was like we just make it a secret. We'll take this 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 metric, our own metrics that say we're losing, and we'll just make it secret. And we did that. And so when the whole thing falls apart, everyone's like, oh, in the media. And I'm like, well, I mean, we knew this, right? I mean, we knew it so much that we hit it. What's, what's really interesting about the whole thing is you're right. The people who rise to the top, and I'll speak in the military for now. I think it's true in the civilian side. They're company men. Yeah. They're managers, not leaders. That's who rises, are bureaucratic knife fighters. That's the people who make it. There are leaders in the military, but they top out at colonel usually. If a couple of them make general, it's rare. They top out at two stars. They're out. You love your soldiers and you know how to actually do leadership. You, you know, you know how to speak candidly, you're not going to make it. The generals choose themselves. A lot of people don't know that. Generals, a board of generals picks the next crop of generals. They, they pick people in their own ranks. Now, what does basic psychology tell you? Human beings tend to pick their mirror. Yeah. They pick people who are like them. So the whole system is built around this. Of course, it is a circle jerk because there are great outcomes for them in the short term or even in the long term for their lives. Because if you play ball and you don't speak out and you don't go Smedley Butler, right, which nobody has since 9-11, you don't go speaking out against the war when you leave as a top general, what's waiting for you? Well, a lucrative pension, but that ain't the half of it. Maybe seven figures on the board of some war industry company or strategic consultancy that is feeding into it, a think tank position. And oh, by the way, those think tanks are all fed, literally funded by the war industry. Right. That's what's waiting for you unless you speak out, unless you have character. And so what happened in Afghanistan, just like what's happening more broadly in American policy or America, is a failure of character. It's a failure of leadership. Everyone lets it go on. And of course, it's not sustainable, as you mentioned, not in the long term, whether it's in Afghanistan or the broad economy. But we've got a, an entire generation of leaders who remind me of like the wealthy folks on the Titanic. Mm. They're waltzing away. They're playing to the band and the cello as the whole thing sinks and they're in denial and they're all in it together. Problem is no women and children are getting out this time. Right. I don't think anybody gets out of this time. I think the and the rest of the and then the rest of the lower tier classes, they're all fighting each other to see who gets upgraded to first class. Mm -hmm. It's a travesty to look at this. And you got a handful of guys like yourself, like me and a few others that are looking at this whole entire thing like this is unsustainable. This is completely unsustainable. It, it is a nightmare. We're, you know, 40, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, 40 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, you can get away with this. You, you know, America is like the only, you know, big kid on the block. Since then, so many other countries have developed in a massive way. They've leapfrogged us in so many things, right? Where we don't have that capability, that luxury to sit on our laurels. And we're still doing the same stupid thing. Danny, one of the things I always say is this. We're the type of country that if the oceans of the world were to dry out tomorrow, we'll still be building submarines because that's just what we do. That's right. It's literally true in some cases. Um, we build, for example, more tanks than the Army wants yeah. every year. I mean, I mean, you're, you're right. You're taking it a step further, and you're absolutely correct. I mean, but we do that. You know, there's like a big tank farm. Like out west somewhere, there's they and, and and you know there's like contractors who are like paid to start them once in a while, so they don't like their engines don't go bad. And like every year, the army's like, we have enough tanks, and then Congress is like, no, we're gonna make more because the war industry that funds our campaigns wants us to keep making. You know, right. we create we, a trillion dollar nuclear weapon modernization program put in place under Obama. 
liberal, right? First mm-hmm. black president. He's talking about a polite. Hold right? on, Danny. Hold on. Now, now, one of the things I told Michelle, <laughs> we got to modernize the American military. And I'm really down with doing that. <laughs> and it's true. That's pretty good, actually. I didn't know he called in. Hello. <laughs> hey, Barry. Hey, Barry. Well, it's amazing, right? A trillion dollar yeah. nuclear modernization program. You can't use these things. No. You cannot use them. I mean, and I doubt that. I doubt that even twenty percent of our nukes actually would fire. That that may well be true. I hope so. I hope that if it comes down to it, we don't fire them. Yeah, I don't. I exactly, exactly. I hope they don't work because the whole idea of like mutually assured destruction, like it all sounds great, except you, you, you can't. It, it, we the, the studies have been done. If if India and Pakistan lob like fifteen at each other, that could be the end of it. Yep. The species, I mean, like yeah, it, exactly. it doesn't take that much. Right. Exactly correct. Exactly correct. Danny, what do you think is some of the solutions for the American public to break away from this mind control program? I know I think this has been a huge victory for people who've been who've been literally, you know, screaming from the rooftops, painting a picture to society, like, "Hey, guys, we we need to change course. What we're doing is not right. It's you know, empire, like what Chris Hedges once said. He said it best, actually. Empire is mutually." It is uh, what's he called? He said, he said it's um, it's collective suicide. Yeah, it's, suicide. it's collective suicide. And like, and what do you think would be some of the steps that we can do to to get people out of this trajectory, to get this country out of this trajectory? It's really hard to shake people's um, apathy, and and that's not just meant as like an accusation or pejorative. Like life is hard, yeah. right? There's there's a lot of tenuousness and and economic insecurity and, and identity and culturally based insecurity. So you got you got to shake people loose. And so, for example, on the foreign policy side stuff that I do, you know, we've got to find a way to make people realize that war is a kitchen table issue, that it has these trade offs and opportunity costs, that there's blowback effect in terms of our own safety because we end up creating more, quote unquote, terrorists, but also militarized police, a surveillance state, yeah. liberties that are never there when you go to look for them, you know, and then pensions that aren't there when you go to look for those either. I mean, all of this is connected. Showing people that is hard. I mean, it, it, it really is. Some of the solutions, though, I mean, frankly, we've got, it sounds so obvious, we've got to get war. Blood money has to get out of politics. Yes. That's it. Like, and I, and I call it that on purpose. And I really do think that you have to use, like, direct language. Yeah. Sort of call things what they are. What we have to do is take the blood money that what we used to call in the 1930s the merchants of death mm-hmm. use that blood money that they fuel the the campaigns that then create the system so that the con- congressmen who control the purse maintain this. That's got to go. That's got to go. Now, that's hard to do, you know, because you got a Supreme Court that's basically like unelected and appointed. Sure. You know, you got Citizens United. There's a lot of things. But here's the thing. The solutions aren't coming from the top. They're not. Change really isn't coming from the top. It almost never has in American history. Right. It's going to require boots on the ground. And, and I guess I'm I'm being what could sound dramatic here, but I'm not kidding. People are going to have to like sit in the streets and shut down the system. Yes. Yes. I mean, you got, you got the French, they, they're out there like raising hell. If, if the bus fare goes up 25 cents. Oh yeah. If they, if they add two hours to like the work week, which is already not that many, like they're flipping cars over and like yeah. burning, burn them down and like barricades in the streets. Like maybe we need a Paris commune, but it has to happen in like Poughkeepsie too. Yes. Um, because the truth is, if you don't make life uncomfortable for the only nation builders and the only nation building that was 
effective. It didn't work in Kandahar or Kabul. It really worked in the Northern Virginia suburbs though, as I've said, mm. where everyone literally put a build, like an, they they put, they built an addition on their McMansions. Like it did work there. That's where all the war industry folks like live or a lot of them. And Washington, down DC, the there. richest zip code in the country right now. If, if their life isn't uncomfortable, there's no motive for change. And I'm sorry to say it. I mean, I'm not calling for like bodies in the streets, literally. But um, I'll tell you what, if, if something doesn't change to remove that privilege, to remove that stability and security from that privileged elite class, and it's not just them, it's their enablers, right? It's the, mm -hmm. the media hacks who get all the attention and the money. It's the political class. It's the think tank class who are faux scholars, most of them, you know. They've got the degrees, but everything they do is, is is really controlled by the hawks. It's controlled by the war industry, for example. And that's true in other areas besides foreign policy. Yeah, if we don't make like a life uncomfortable for them, then uh, then this, this system goes on and on. It's going to have to be a bottom-up grassroots solution. How that happens, man, if I had the answer to that, then, uh, then, then I'd be working to implement it and certainly wouldn't be yelling all day about it and staying up all night wondering. Yeah. You know, I look at um I look at what's happening abroad. The empire is collapsing. It nobody takes it seriously. You're having the unipolar world that's been dominated by the Anglo-American thinking is is being done away with. I see a, a multipolar world emerging. We've been offered many times to be a part of that. We're the only country in the world that snubbed its nose at that because we want to maintain status quo, zero sum game, right? We've we've fallen into the lie of the dilicities trap that the emerging power has to get into some sort of conflict. With the with the with the rising power, I'm sorry. The uh, the established power has to get into conflict mm -hmm. with the rising power. That's right. And all these false concepts, man, that 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 our Western uh, politicians and think tankers are just imbued with that are just completely wrong. And I look at this empire falling apart overseas, and I'm seeing the rise of a biomedical security state here, and I'm seeing glimpses of what's happening in Australia, and it terrifies me to the core. They've literally reverted back to a penal colony. And I'm thinking to myself, and Canada is not too far behind. I'm like, okay, what's going to happen here next? I mean, we're seeing a loss of freedoms and liberties across the Western world. It's terrifying, Danny. Oh, I mean, yeah. And a lot of it is built on these zero-sum yeah. game fallacies. The idea that if if we cooperate with our quote-unquote rivals, if, if we're not always in competition with the next power, if if economic rising isn't seen as immediately like a security threat, the truth is, besides nuclear weapons, like someone in, in, in our country or someone else's miscalculating with a nuke, which could happen. And oh, by the way, it will be an American. Like if I had to put my money on the uh, table, yes. <laughs> like it will not. It's going to be an American or an Israeli, like who's going to launch the nuke by either accident or some lunatic, like strange loving style. So besides that, and then some of the environmental uh, risks, we're not under any threat at all. Statistically, like we are not in danger mm -hmm. from enemies. Mm -hmm. We are not, whether it's terrorists or Correct. uniformed like Russians or Chinese, like we are really not at risk. So this idea that we always have to be in competition in this unipolar idea that if we're not the strongest, then we're somehow going to have someone's boot on our neck, like, like some Red Dawn scenario is absurd. The powerful count on it. They count on two things, your fear and your apathy. Yeah. They count on it. They can't run the system without it. And so they foster both. They foster apathy through distraction and they foster fear through fear mongering. 
and it happens from the top. A lot of people are complicit in it. It plays to all the basest of human emotions, um, which I understand, right? It, it's life is hard. Um, but that that's how it's done. And, and those myths are, are what really are just going to do us in. Absolutely. Very well said. Then I know you could only stay until four to five minutes today. So if you want to give out uh, your contact information, which I already have in the description box, if you want people to follow you, where do they find your work, brother? Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm, I'm on social media at skeptical vet, skeptical It's my little cheeky thing. Uh, you can find most of my stuff there, but if, yeah, if you follow me in those places, um, my books and uh, columns come up there and uh, I've got a weird last name, which is on the screen. So if you throw that in um, my endless pontificating will come up on YouTube shows and uh, in prose. And I really enjoy this. Hope we do this conversation again. Oh, we're going. Uh, I definitely want to. And next time it. I have you on, man, I want you to just walk us through, you, through that book. Love to. Yeah. We can, we can pick a few chapters or do a section each time and just like dig into an era. I'm all about it. And my, really my copy is coming in on Saturday, so I'll be right up by then. Awesome. Yeah, let's do it. And I really enjoyed the just the whole conversation. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Folks, thank you all for listening in. Once again, it's roguenews.com. Subscribe, like, comment, share. Danny will be back uh, soon. And uh, make sure you follow his work. Buy his book. The book is critical. You want to, like, de-brainwash your friends, break the matrix, get the book. Links are all in the description box. Thank you all for listening in. Have an awesome Memorial Day weekend. I mean, Labor Day weekend. Cheers.